and welcome to the penultimate program for Tuesday Home Time for 2022. And I'll be talking with four regulars about the year. Dr. Tim Anderson, Dr. Sue Wareham, Bob Phelps and Peter Murphy and of course the other regular Kevin Healy. And here he is with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when who'd want to be a giant resource company raking in trillions in obscene windfall super-duper profits with all the threats and barriers they have to confront? Like a government threatening them with a windfall super-duper obscene profits tax and now a price cap on the super-duper obscene prices raking in those super-duper obscene windfall profits. Who? Yet they battle on. Such is their concern to ensure the people they so care about can enjoy the energy they produce. Altruistic to a fault. See, they point out a super-duper windfall obscene profits tax would dissuade them from investing, from exploring and extracting more gas, and create a shortage, and who wants that? Uh, well, other than long-haired commie greedies who carry on that we should stop extracting gas and fossils altogether just because of a bit of unseasonal weather harbinging a few disasters. And they point out a price cap will dissuade them from investing, from exploring and extracting more gas and creating a shortage. And who wants that other than, well, we know who. The anti-caring business class socialists are proposing a $12 price cap with those who know warning this would reduce the super-duper windfall of seen profits to mere super-windfall of seen profits, a blatant attack on a great industry. And the even more anti-caring business evil unions reckon an 8 to $10 cap would still allow super-obscene profits, but... To prove the government and evil unions have no idea what they're talking about, the ever-sensible Woodside with Pollution Supremo Mego Neil Before Profits described a tax or price cap as a black mark on government which would only exacerbate the issue. Poor Meg. The only answer is to produce more gas, she pointed out. One of the things that is important to us is fiscal stability. Meg stressed the obvious. Uh, fiscal stability, Meg? Of course, we, we must have fiscally stable, super-duper obscene windfall profits. Uh, so the black mark government can't tax you and can't price cap you either. Exactly. Either will be a disaster for the whole country, which is all we care about. So what can it do? It can... No, no, it must stop the anti-true blue Aussie, long-haired, greedy, commie, wooden worker and iron environmentalists getting in our way, getting in the way of progress. And coal, which like gas has made such a wonderful, such an invaluable contribution to our wild weather patterns, denied the soaring super-duper obscene profits they are charging have anything to do with our power bills. Oh, that was prices, by the way. <laughs> right, Kevin, prices they are charging. The Minerals Council promising a massive multi-trillion campaign if the government dares go ahead with a price cap or imposes an obscene profits tax on them. An unnecessary explanation really, because only the most rabid, long-haired, commie greenie would imagine there was some connection between coal giants charging super-duper obscene prices and our power bills, which is probably why they thought there was no need to explain the non-connection, knowing we'd take their word for it. 
One proud resource behemoth, Santosas the Prophets, did provide an explanation after dolphins were found belly up dead in a $25,000 litre oil leak, Santosas managed to spill 75k off the Pilbara coast. After a bit of denial, the company came up with his explanation after goody-goody interferers produced photos of dead dolphins in the oil slick. And the explanation? Santosas's leak had absolutely nothing to do with the dead dolphins floating in its oil slick. Such a logical explanation should have been the end of it, but true to form for these interfering people, an academic mammal researcher raved that it would take a brave or foolish person to say how the dolphins seen near the oil spill died without undertaking a post-mortem. The fact the dolphins were seen dead and floating suggests a sudden death. Look, as far as the week that was is concerned, we trust Santos as the promise to tell us the truth. Like it assures us its floating gas plant opposed by Tiwi Islanders off northern Trubluwazi poses no threat whatever from something like well, say a 25,000 litre oil spill. And after the full bench of the Federal Court ruled in favour of the Tiwi Islanders last week, both the government and the company said this would delay production and create further gas shortages. So we presume, with government support, they'll consult the Tiwi Islanders and tell them the project is going ahead whether they like it or not. After all, it's their law. The gas field is called Barossa, like the wine region. Maybe we could speculate because Santosas is certainly whining over those bloody interfering Tiwi Islanders. Although they're concerned that it could lead to a gas shortage, maybe, maybe, but then they say the gas will be for export to South Korea and Japan to pollute those countries as well. If, if we didn't have such faith in the reliability of the industry, we might have thought, obviously falsely, there could be some inconsistency. And brickbats to the Queensland Hermes Gracious Majesty's land government for its economic ignorance, boasting, boasting, mind you, it is raking in trillions because it still owns coal-fired power stations and generators, selfishly depriving its customers of the great benefits of privatisation that we're all lucky enough to enjoy. Customers cruelly seduced by little incidentals like cheaper bills and better service. This whole threatening picture summed up by a True Blue Aussie capitalist review deep-thinking commentator, deep-thinking people who know all about the delicate flower that is the economy, deep-thinking commentator under the headline, Why a Gas Price Cap Will Be a Disaster. Well, our proud resource industry has told us that. Sadly, there's an even bigger threat to the environment and attempts to increase renewable energy, wages bloody wages. It's always the way, isn't it? Caring employers have warned that multi-employer agreements which could force them to pay wages would drive up the costs of renewable energy projects and put power prices up even higher or even thwart investment altogether. But on a positive side, to confirm caring employers' sincerity when they declare they want wages to increase, some sceptics actually doubt their sincerity based on nothing more reliable than the history of capitalism. To confirm, caring employers have attacked recent wage increases as grossly inadequate. One said a 15% increase was insulting and called for substantial increases. After aged care workers were awarded a 15% increase, the evil unions had asked 
were 25%. Aged care caring employers said the 15% was insulting and called for the 25%. See, they care. And child care caring employers also called for substantial wage increases for their workers. And again, only the most cynical would suggest their conversion on the road to the fair work, true blue no longer work choices, just looks like a commission, has anything to do with the small fact that the government will pick up their wages bill, leaving them simply to pocket the profits. Another minor fact that other caring employers aren't nearly as profligate and indeed argue any increase would destroy the economy should not be used to suggest these caring employers are not sincere when they say they'd just love to see wages rise but not just yet, the time is not right. The win-win advantages of contracting work out and sacking or, sorry, sadly having to let go your workforce were highlighted on our telly screens as we saw the airline, which used to be our airline's passengers' luggage, being thrown around by labour hire casual workers. Win-win for the airline, which used to be's bottom line, and the caring labour hire employer. Perhaps not so win-win for the passengers and the sadly let go workforce. Former Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, has joined the chorus line proffering advice and his renowned wisdom to the poor, beleaguered, caring business class party. It must boldly articulate its timeless values, Alexander advised. And here were we thinking that was the problem. Former Big Supremo Scuttle Them More Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, said there were two problems as he defended himself over taking heaps of portfolios from his clearly incompetent colleagues. One, he would have admitted he had signed himself in as Minister for just everything if the media had but asked him. Right, there. So it's the media's fault. We assume they didn't ask him, mainly because they didn't think there was a need to. And two... The censure motion was a retrospective political attack for, the, for blatant political purposes. It's the most blatant retrospective political attack since we spent millions on a royal commission to stitch up little Billy Shorten ambition and Julia Gorlinghardt and the evil unions. Hard it is to believe, listener, a survey showed he became the most unpopular big supremo since these surveys began, and it's not like there's not plenty of worthy competition. Most unpopular over little matters like truth and integrity. How would people have got that impression? Oh, and addressing the economy, little matters like inflation and interest rates, the caring business class, big economic shadow guru, Angus Tailings, warned it was critical we solve the problems. It really is. It really is. He's taken lessons from former big supremo little Johnny Howard. Anyway, it really is. It's been critical for months. We get a solution. Months? Why didn't he say years? That new Indonesia and other people's business law banning sex outside marriage. God, if that applied in True Blue Aussie, there'd be about five people not in jail. And the cells would be so crowded, who knows what they'd be getting up to, so to speak. On the positive side, yet another excuse to build more and more prisons run by the private sector. Although, although, who'd be guarding them? Because it's almost certain the screws, no pun intended, and the... Sorry, forces of law and order would be in there with everyone else. Finally, those with hex debts are complaining that with high inflation, their debts are increasingly increasing as the government insists they must rise by the CPI inflation rate. So, 
we ask Big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi, that means their incomes, the price of labour, will also rise by the inflation rate. As the Reserve Bank Governor has so wisely made clear, that would be an economic disaster, creating a wage price spiral. True Blue Aussie workers whom I am here to support understand that. So there we are, listener. We're just left with a price spiral. Good afternoon. And next week is Kevin's final The Week That Was. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom, Interactive Theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at the store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. your gift giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations led organization, Children's Ground creates holistic long term change with First Nations children, their family and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. And for my final interview for the year with Dr. Tim Anderson. And Tim, we're looking back on the year 2022. You've been on a number of overseas trips this year. Connecting with your activities and work? I feel like the things that I've been writing about expanding to the point where most of the world is actually in a situation where, you know, 10 years ago, Syria and Cuba were, uh, it now applies to dozens of countries, basically, uh, including big countries like Iran and Russia and China. I mean, the US is going mad in decline and has initiated these proxy wars and you know internal US documents are confirming all this too proxy wars against literally dozens of countries and even uh, against their own so-called allies of course they don't really have allies but the people that they call allies like the Europeans who are now suffering as a result of what they're doing so now the hopeful sign to that is that if you go to Latin America and the Middle East and and even parts of Africa and Asia talking to people from there at least you see that there's a growing coalition, effectively, new blocks forming against this malignant spread of war and economic war. But the economic war, the sieges are, in many respects, uh, even more dangerous, more awful than the, than the proxy wars because hundreds of millions of people literally are, are being affected by these wars. Can you talk about the blocks, what, maybe the African blocks? What's going on there? Well, there's been quite a number of coups in in Africa, particularly the northern part of Africa and West Africa, 
US, as you know, has the world divided up into blocks, and they have one called AFRICOM. That is to say, there's a Pentagon command. I'm not making this up. They actually have the whole, the entire world. The Pentagon has the entire world divided into blocks, and they are supposedly dealing with the security of the entire world. So CENTCOM is most of the Middle East, and AFRICOM is is most of Africa. So the coups, the the attempts to destabilise many African countries, are following the pattern that has been used in Iraq and Syria and Iran um, and Yemen, and that is that they will get their what they call their allies, um, like Saudi Arabia, for example, to create terrorist groups to destabilise. It's a protection racket. So you've got Al Shabaab in northeast Africa, and you've got Boko Haram in other parts of the northern half of Africa which are destabilizing and then the US comes in and says we will help you deal with this terrorism and it's a protection racket where they offer their protection so-called like in Iraq, like in Syria and they they use it to dominate and, st- and stand over those countries and whether or not they are against the government or whether they simply want to increase their influence over the government that's what they've been doing in, in many dozens of countries. Of course in Latin America where I was earlier this year, I made three trips to Latin America, to Venezuela and to Cuba. That's been going on for a very, very long time. And it's in some ways, it's been going on in Africa and the Middle East for quite a while too. But Latin America has virtually two centuries of it. So there's, it's interesting to see the perspectives there and, and the ideas that have formed around how they can safeguard their independence. I mean, the decolonization process in Latin America happened two centuries ago, but they've had to deal with the so-called second wave of colonization or the second independence and that's what I find particularly interesting going from Latin America to other parts of the world which are dealing with similar types of patterns of intervention and similar types of patterns of trying to vindicate or or rediscover their independence. Talk a bit about Venezuela a bit more. They've been fighting the US to overthrow them for quite a number of years now since Shabazz came in. What's the situation there at the moment? Yeah, there was a very deep economic uh, recession, really depression um, in recent years until last year. And that was because the US economic blockade was ramped up by the Trump administration. And they then pretended that the government of Venezuela wasn't really the elected government, that some other guy, Juan Guaido, who had been elected by no one, was the president of, of Venezuela. And that was, it seemed like a farcical thing to do, but it had a serious uh, implication, and that was they could pretend, in particular, when I say they, in particular the Anglo-Americans, the US and their partner in, in Britain, they could pretend that this Guaido was the president of Venezuela, and they could steal all the assets of Venezuela, the, the, the gold reserves that they had in the Bank of England, the CITCO, the big um, fuel network in the US, which Chavez had generously been giving discounts to poor families in the US for many years. All of that was stolen. Something like, they're talking now about $20 billion of assets were stolen. With that, there was, and then the oil industry in Venezuela was also blockaded, so they were still depending on some imported technology. And it was actually Iran two years ago, Venezuela's ally, real ally, Iran, which helped them restart their refineries um, two years ago. And what we see now is, um, or from last year, was that economic growth and oil exports kicked back into Venezuela and the economy has been improving 
gradually, I mean, to give you some idea, when I was in Venezuela, I was in Venezuela twice earlier this year in February and, and April for some events, national events and international events, and the salaries of some public servants in February were $5 a month in February and $30 a month in April. So it's still incredibly low, but it gives you an idea that there is some sort of movement happening there. And indeed, the economic growth and the oil exports in Venezuela through into this year have been substantial. So Venezuela is regaining its capacity at a time when the Biden administration in the U.S., which still has Venezuela under blockade, also has Iran under blockade and also has Russia under blockade. So really, the Biden administration has presided over the, the greatest increase of economic blockade. They call it sanctions, but they're really not sanctions. They don't have any legitimacy in international law. But that's at the root of this bottleneck in um, energy and the energy crisis we're seeing now because uh, really a lot of that oil is still being sold, but it's being resold. For example, Russian fuel is being recycled effectively through India, through China, through the Saudis, and sold at a higher price to the Europeans, for example. That's from the U.S. side of things. The U.S. is contributing enormously to this energy crisis, and of course we know the, the Europeans are being affected by that now. On the Latin American side of things, there's some new possibilities. I mean, the Cuban economy has been through a very hard time too because of COVID and because of the double blockade uh, by the Biden administration on both Cuba and Venezuela. And Venezuela is still the most important economic partner to Cuba. China is a close number number two now. So, But Cuba had gone through a very hard time because of COVID. Their tourism industry was wiped out basically and they're just starting to recover now too. So we're seeing some really, in, in this post-COVID period and, and in a time when the, the economic blockades are at their maximum, I mean, there has never been this many economic blockades, so-called sanctions on dozens of countries, literally. It's, it's the reverse to what they were talking about in the World Trade Organization 20 years ago, of, you know, this sort of supposed ideal of, of free trade, which has always been a bit of an illusion, but it seems to be even more contradicted now by the, by the extent of economic wars going. Well, that's forced a lot of countries like Venezuela and Cuba and Syria and Iran and, and many others to look at these eastern blocs effectively, the counterpart to the, the Western organizations, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the IMF and so on, and the creation of these big blocs, the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the BRICS, which represents 40% of the people of the world, now has a a big queue of countries that want to join and would push it over to being more than half the population of the world in the in both the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation, which is Shanghai Cooperation has been a, a big regional group, basically Russia, China, and Central Asia. But both of those groups are expanding now because so many countries and big countries like India and Indonesia are thinking, what's going on here? Why are we joining in these wars of the U.S., what's in it for us? We see the same thing at a, at a smaller level in the Pacific with the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea saying, what's going on here? We're not joining in this Cold War between the U.S. and China. I think a lot of countries are, who aren't even aligned or, or don't want to radicalize themselves and don't want to see, for example, the U.S. as their enemies, they are still 
alarmed at this. Little countries like Papua New Guinea and bigger countries like Indonesia and, and India, they don't want to join into these, these types of wars. They want to stay out of them. They want to look after their own interests. It's a very powerful movement across the world now which is affecting those countries which have not really wanted to, uh, to buy into the, the proxy wars that have been going on. And the exact opposite is Australia. At a governmental level, you're right, there's a great fear, there's a great weakness in, in the face of the politicians in Canberra do not want to incur the displeasure of Washington. They're very worried about that. This, this is what happens with collaborators and people that become effectively slave to the conditions of Washington. Why is it, for example, that the both the... Um, I mean, it's a bipartisan thing, isn't it? The, what was the previous government's leader's name? Um, Morrison and the current one, Albanese. Both of them have bought into this anti-China campaign, which is really a very dangerous thing. And I've seen at a sort of a micro level here from some people you might not expect, you know, some very right-wing people and people in the police, for example, in the military, who are very alarmed at the idea, why are we going to war with China here? This is just crazy. But you don't have much pushback at all at the, pol the political level here. I think at a popular level, if you polled people about... I mean, of course, people are influenced by the by the war media, which, which keeps pushing these sorts of things, but I think there is a great sense of alarm that uh, it's not in the interests of people in this country to go to war with... China, which over, over what? China is not threatening Australia. Maybe people have fears and worries and strange ideas about China, but it's been our biggest trade partner and there's no obvious reason why we should have any sort of conflict. So at a popular level, I think it's, as always, it's quite different to the elite level, you know, the, the corporate media and, and the governments. There's a really a, a huge reluctance to break with the latest war of the US. Maybe people, maybe Albanese and and people like Penny Wong, maybe they think differently privately, but they won't say it uh, publicly. And US lobbyists in Canberra, they must be thick on the ground? Yes, well, I mean, they, of course, have their mouthpieces. They have most of the major corporate media, which are really, in effect, themselves lobbyists on, on Canberra. I mean, the, the politicians typically, and I've seen many examples of this, they are really scared of, of incurring the displeasure of one or other of the corporate media, basically. So they will do all they can to try and avoid any sort of sustained attack by the, the corporate media. We saw, I suppose, perhaps a, a small version of a failure of that in the Victorian elections where the, the Murdoch media was campaigning very strongly against Dan Andrews and you know, saying he was on an anti-Christian crusade and all sorts of things, and the Andrews government won there. But I think... That's a small example which we've got to keep in perspective. By and large, both the major parties are really in fear and running away from any sort of conflict or any sort of serious sustained criticism by the, the Murdoch media or the major TV chains. Can I take you back to the Middle East? And we've now seen two decades of aggression against many countries in the Middle East. How are they faring at the moment, mm. the people you're talking to? How are they feeling as um, this year ends? Yes, well, you're right to say that it's the, the region there. And this century, there's really been at least nine wars in the so-called Middle East. And many of them are failing now from the US point of view of the, the aim that the Condoleezza Rice and the, the George W. Bush 
regime um, earlier this century pushed the idea of a new Middle East which would be dominated by their wonderful democracies of Israel and Saudi Arabia, basically. That's largely failed because of resistance in a lot of those little countries uh, like Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Iran. Now there's a current, there's a new wave of so-called color revolution going on in, in Iran at the moment. Basically, they've failed. But in the wake of that failure, there's been this increase in economic wars. You know, there was an agreement with Iran and Trump tore it up and Biden hasn't gone back on that. The blockade on Syria is extremely harsh. The partial blockade on Iraq and Lebanon have got worse. They've become very similar to the blockade on Syria in many respects. So what we see now, starting from Palestine, which of course is this long-term aggravation and the colonization of Palestine and the the, the repression of the Palestinian people, effectively they have been blockaded physically because they don't control their own territory or their own borders. So they've been under an economic blockade for a very long time. But now if you look at the entire region, it's not just Palestine, it's Lebanon, it's Yemen, it's Syria, it's Iraq, it's Iran. And Afghanistan has joined the group now that the US has withdrawn from Afghanistan. But um, So effectively you have that entire region, which many now call West Asia rather than the Middle East, because the Middle East is a rather Eurocentric term basically, from the Mediterranean to the Himalayas, you've got a economic blockade on most of those countries, at least the independent countries. We can leave out occupied Palestine and the Jordan and uh, you know the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qatar, some of those Gulf Arab monarchies, which are really the source of actual terrorism against the other countries because they're acting to host U.S. bases and so on. But the rest of those independent countries, whatever version of uh, government they have, are under a siege. There is a siege from the Mediterranean to the Himalayas, effectively. And it's really very powerful. It, it's uh, affecting many more people than the actual physical wars. It's a serious crime. Uh, the Western media continues to call it sanctions. It's not sanctions in any sense of international law, like a just punishment for some sort of wrongdoing. They are unilateral coercive measures. The UN now has a special office looking at the impact of these unilateral coercive measures, and there's been some scathing reports on on those measures against, uh, for example, against Syria and against Venezuela. In the case of Yemen, it's actually they actually are legal because the whole UN Security Council has, up until now, conspired to keep real sanctions against the people of Yemen. That is to say, there's a revolutionary government in the capital which controls three-quarters of the population of Yemen. But they, have, for seven years, have been under actual international sanctions. The rest of them, Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and so on, they are all unilateral measures not supported by international law. So there's a terrible economic war going on against the people of the Middle East or West Asia, and really that's a major driver for those countries precisely to join into these new eastern and southern blocs like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the and the BRICS and and that's spread there's now interest much on all continents effectively to look seriously at joining those sorts of groups as i mentioned before countries which were not directly involved in conflict like indonesia and india and smaller countries also are now seriously considering joining those blocs because they've had it with what the U.S. has been doing at an international level. Where do you see the war in Ukraine going? Well, again, this is a terrible situation where really, in my view, the 
the people who are doing the greatest damage to the people of Ukraine now outside are those who keep repeating this misinformation that Ukraine is winning. The more this war drags on in Ukraine, the worse it's going to be for the people of Ukraine. Ukraine has been losing catastrophically for, for many, many months now. It's just that Russia is going through a few different phases where they thought they could get away with a special military operation to deal with the problems of southeast Ukraine and NATO has, and the US in particular, has turned that into a much bigger issue and so that they've upped the ante there. But the longer this goes on without a settlement, the less likely there is to be some sort of nation left in Ukraine uh, the way things are going. This is another proxy war. It's certain that the US has been working there behind the scenes, not secretly because you know, the people like Lindsey Graham have been there saying since 2014 we are training these people to fight the Russians and to rip apart what they call the Russian Empire and to weaken Russia and so on. It's out in the open, all that sort of stuff. But nevertheless, they're getting someone else to do it. This is what is in vogue. Most of the wars of this century around the world by the US have not been invasions like Iraq 2003 or Afghanistan 2001. They've been the proxy wars, basically. They're getting, and what Hillary Clinton called smart power, we're getting other people to fight those wars and other people to pay for those wars so far as they can. So in the case of Ukraine, they're getting the, the Europeans to carry a lot of the weight of that and a lot of the cost of that when it comes to an energy crisis and the decimation of European industry. There's now European industry moving to the US. This type of proxy war has exposed a lot of contradictions, as I said, between the US and its so-called European partners in in the EU or in, in NATO. Effectively, Russia already controls the southeast parts of Ukraine that they were concerned about, the Russian-speaking people there who were being attacked repeatedly by the, the neo-Nazis in sector of, of Ukrainian ultranationalism these days, as it's become after the 2014 coup. That's a fait accompli, effectively, and, and uh, unfortunately, the Western audiences are being persuaded that uh, it hasn't happened, and somehow or other Russia is having succeeded in taking over and protecting at least 80 or 85 percent of that southeast part of Ukraine, the Russian population, who were subject to this changing of borders over the, the course of the Soviet Union and the dismantling of the Soviet Union. They are now part of Russia. That's not going to change effectively, but so long as they keep stoking the fire there and they all just simply keep destroying what remains of the Ukrainian state. It's a very sad thing, but it follows a pattern of the sort of proxy wars that are going on in other parts of the world. Notably, Iran, for example, we now have at least four different armed groups which are have taken cover under the the actual protests in Iran and have turned it into a terrorist war, just as the US did with Syria 10 years earlier, as they did with Libya 10 years earlier too. Can I stay with Ukraine for a few minutes? Do we go back to the coup in 2014, or do we have to go back to the dissolution of the USSR to get an explanation of, of why there is this conflict in Ukraine at the moment? Yes, um, I, I agree. I mean, anyone who looks at history realises you start looking at history, you have to keep going back. You have to keep going back to understand things. Certainly the most stupid thing now is the idea that this all began in February 2022 when 
Russia started its special military operation or invasion, whatever you want to call it. It's, of course, it's upgraded from a special military operation now. It's a much more serious war. But certainly the coup in 2014 was very important for the U.S. getting control of the regime in Kiev and helping train all of those groups, right sector, Azov, and so on, with the idea of launching an assault on uh, what the people in the Donbass region and Crimea had already done for themselves. They they basically declared some sort of autonomy there after 2014. But you're right, if you go back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the redrafting of borders and the what the Russians say was the promise to not expand NATO and, and to maintain that old Cold War system. Nevertheless, of course, as we know, since 1991, NATO expanded substantially and that was all the time seen as a threat by Russia and Russia had said that for many, many years do not place these weapons on our border. We know that they're aimed at us and that was ignored time and time again and then a large force was gathered eventually to try and launch an assault from the Kiev point of view to retake the Donbass and, and Crimea and, and really the Russians got in first. But certainly you have to look at a, at a deeper history than simply February 2022. Um, 2014 was a defining moment, but you're right, going back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the expansion of NATO, they're very important to understand where this war came from. Can I just go back to... South America for a few moments. We've had elections in mm. Chile, Brazil, Colombia. Can you understand mm. what's happening in Peru at the moment? Well, there is a coup in, in Peru. There's a, another coup in Peru. The elected president who never really managed to mobilise um, a new social force in Peru has been outflanked by the Conservatives. He didn't have control of the, the Congress, just as Historically, Allende and Chile didn't have control of the Congress, and so there's the right sector, of course, supported by the U.S., um, has helped uh, manoeuvre against him. He's now held prisoner at the moment. The vice president, it looks a little bit like what happened in Ecuador, except in, in Ecuador, the vice president actually betrayed the party he was working for and abandoned it. In this case, it seems that the Organisation of American States which is effectively based in Washington and a creature of Washington, is now completely behind a new regime led by this vice president. And so uh, it seems likely that there's a mobilising of the old traditional reactionary forces in Peru behind this new vice president. But to, you know, to jail an, a popularly elected president there is, is really a, a terrible precedent. And now there's a reaction from the other South American states, um, including more or less um, centrist states like that in Chile, you'd be aware of the fact that the the young elected president in Chile, uh, Gabriel Boric, has not really broken from some of the right-wing groups that Chile's been linked to in, in recent times. He's been used uh, to attack Nicaragua and Venezuela in particular, for example, but even in that case, Boric in Chile has been alarmed by this coup in Peru, which is which is a neighbour of, of Chile, and so there's a, there's a very strong reaction going on now in the other South American and Latin American states to this this coup in Peru. Peru is the one state, by the way, which is um, you know there was a group of Lima, uh, a right wing group formed around the fact that there had not been any sort of popular left government in Peru for for decades, 
certainly not a successful one in, in, in many, many decades. So it was seen as a type of breakthrough that you had a popular leftist president there, but now he's in jail. And not very far away from the bottom end, I'd say, of Chile, you've got the Malvinas, and 40 years after the war there, you've got um, military exercises by Britain. Well, Britain after that war has has held on to its, you know, its, some of its colonial outreach. There are many parts around the world which Britain is still uh, militarily involved in. Uh, Gibraltar in Spain, for example, is a strategic outpost that they want to ha- hang on to. It's less clear what great strategic importance the Malvinas or the Falklands have for Britain these days, but. Um, now you have this thing called lawfare in, in Latin America, which is extended to the conviction of and supposed jailing of Vice President Cristina Fernandez. Now, they, they call it lawfare because it's a corrupt use of the law to try and disqualify popular or left candidates. They've used it against Dilma, Rousseff and, and Lula, the silver in Brazil. It was overturned in, in both cases. They used it against the, the popularly elected president in Paraguay. It's now affecting Cristina, who's a very popular vice president now. She was president for two terms in Argentina. So Argentina has its own internal turmoil while, while this British um, reassertion of their colonial outposts um, is, it goes on. The Malvinas have become an international feature, by the way. They're, it's really, in a sense, it's a mini version of Palestine in the sense that it, it enters into the politics of uh, countries in other continents. You know, the, the whole idea that Britain is hanging on to these outposts where there are very few people, but they want to keep their strategic posts, you know, like the US wants to keep its prison camp in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, and, and Britain wants to keep Gibraltar on the, on the entrance to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, looking forward or not to 2023, do we see a more desperate US administration? Yeah, no, my opinion is, yes, that, the, that really the... the the expansion of conflict, the expansion of wars, and in particular proxy wars and economic wars, of course associated with propaganda wars, is precisely a result of the U.S. losing its position in the world. They imagined, many of them dreamed, that after the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago, that would mean that they could dominate the world, they would run the world, and anyone who was against them was going to be annihilated effectively. And they've done that with little countries like Libya, for example, but there's been a, a strong reaction to that. And in fact, the reaction to the, these extensive wars and the megalomania of, of Washington, whoever's in, in power there, it so happens that the liberal faction in Washington is the more creative one in terms of driving new wars. That's why we see this strange phenomenon that you have a lot of uh, realist or realist right-wing figures in the U.S. questioning the foreign wars, whereas in the past it was thought that the right wing were the proponents of war and the liberals were the, you know, let's have more diplomacy. It's turned around now because this idea of smart power of the Hillary Clintons and the Obamas of the world and now the Biden administration means that they can seem to expand these wars without bounds. You know, who would have thought that having failed to destroy little Syria, a small country, there's something you know, with a population same as Australia, more or less, they would then go against the big countries like Iran and Russia and China, but they're doing that now. 
and it's created a lot of concern within the US. But I, I think these are precisely the results of a of a failing empire that, that there is this declining influence of the US and in a dialectical type of way it's triggered this reverse movement where you have a large number of countries now express really a majority of countries in the world in, in terms of population wanting to uh, seek refuge in some of these new eastern or southern blocks like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization like BRICS and so on and that's of course precisely in reaction to to the US's proliferation of war. Thanks so much for everything you've done this year, Tim. Welcome, Jan. Thank you. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot org dot A-U. A 3CR supporter. The sun is shining, or at least it's attempting to. So get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshade Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 94198377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. As part of Tuesday Home Time Reviewing of 2022, with regular guests on Tuesday Home Time, I spoke with Dr Sue Wareham, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. What I'd like you to do, Sue, is talk about some of the campaigns which MAPW has followed in 2022. And I know one you've been extremely involved with is the Australian Frontier Wars and the Australian War Memorial, the campaign to pressure the War Memorial to acknowledge fully the Frontier Wars has been ongoing for a number of years, but I believe that this year it's reached a peak, particularly with the broadcast on SBS of the Australian Frontier Wars. War Memorial seems to be backtracking now, is that correct? They're not sort of moving how people expected they might? Yes, it's correct that they're not moving as as strongly as people hoped when they stated 
several months ago, and mind you, they didn't actually come out with an announcement that we want to recognise the frontier wars much better and do it properly. Um, it was really just a response to a question at a media event on another another matter related to the memorial. So there was they didn't ever put a lot of fanfare around it. But yes, people were led to believe that there would be some proper and decent and proportionate recognition of the frontier wars finally at the at the memorial as there should be. But some evidence that emerged from Senate estimates just recently, a week or two ago, was to the effect that the amount of space that the memorial intends to give to the frontier wars is really tiny, a very, very small percentage um, in terms of square metres and also in terms of the funding, a very small percentage of the total that's going to this huge redevelopment. Um, And in fact, the frontier wars will be placed in the same sort of gallery, the same space as uh, other pre-colonial and early 1900s wars. So, not pre-colonial, pre-federation. So, it's really, you know, wars like the Sudan War, the Boer War, and others around, around the same sort of time. And to imagine or to sort of suggest by that that the frontier wars have no greater significance than small contingents that Australia sent to overseas wars over a hundred years ago in which very few Australians died. To suggest that um, those wars are sort of on an equal footing with the frontier wars is really, really quite absurd. So this is not proportionate recognition that the memorial plans to give to the frontier wars. They're going to be lumped in with wars of much, much uh, lesser significance to Australians right now and to the direction our our country has taken over, well, since um, over the past 200 years. So that's, um, that's very disappointing. At the time that the memorial first stated that they were going to recognise the frontier wars better, they did at the same time still make it quite clear that the purpose and the primary focus of the big redevelopment is current wars. So they really want to play up the, the significance of wars which, well, when the redevelopment was first being planned, wars which weren't even finished, the Afghanistan war, which is which raises um, big problems in itself. So the memorial, it seems, have never had any intention of probably recognising and commemorating the frontier wars. Well, it's just a further slap in the face for the First Nations people, isn't it? And particularly... Rachel Perkins, who put her life into this series. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, quite quite a number of First Nations people have really, as you say, had a um, have a lot of rightly a lot of uh, well matters of identity, um, emotional impact, the impacts of colonisation on their lives right now, all of these things which are deeply, deeply go to the heart of problems between First Nations people and uh, and the, sort of, I guess what we might call the dominant culture uh, today. So yes, it could well be seen as a slap in the face for for those people and that's of course 
extremely um, unfortunate and it didn't, didn't need to be that way. Is it the makeup of the council? Is there any, or if, and if that is so, is there any possibility that the members of the council could change and attitudes might change? Well, certainly the membership of the Royal Council is a big problem. Uh, the council is pretty heavily militarised. Most of the members of the council are either current or uh, former past ADF members. So, and that's not that's not representative of Australian society. And the memorial was meant to be a memorial for all of us to remember and commemorate our war dead. And there wouldn't be many families in Australia who don't have some war dead among their ancestors and maybe not even um, so so long ago. So it's, the, the council is, is not representing the Australian people um, properly and, and that's been evident in, this, in the redevelopment. I mean, the Australian people whose opposition to the redevelopment was made absolutely crystal clear on so many occasions that that was all ignored. So the the council is not representing the Australian people. The new chair of the council, Kim Beasley, we understand has, well, Kim Beasley has a pretty good track record in in relation to issues uh, around First Nations people. So there is some hope there that there will be a better outlook for the memorial's approach to the frontier wars. Mind you, Kim Beasley himself brings with him a long and avid history of enthusiasm for, for weaponry. So that uh, that doesn't look good from the point of view of getting the weapons makers out of the memorial. But as far as the frontier wars are concerned, then we can hope that Kim Beasley being on the council might make a difference in the right direction. Just picking up what you said then about the weapons manufacturers getting them out of the war memorial, I'm sure that many people who aren't familiar with the war memorial would be shocked if they knew that weapons manufacturers had a place in that memorial. Yes, I think so. Um, And when MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, has done campaigning around this, as we continue to do and others continue to do, as you say, people who haven't come across this before uh, are pretty shocked that the place where we commemorate our war dead gives special recognition to um, to the companies that actually rely on wars for their profits, the companies that make the weapons. So, yes, we we believe the Australian people uh, generally uh, would, would not support this policy, but it's been a very hard policy to turn around. The former director of the memorial, Brenda Nelson, was adamant that they were not going to change the policy, and the current director, Matt Anderson, uh, seems to be following in the with the same... Uh, same policy. So we continue to do work around this. Currently the War Memorial um, has funding from Lockheed Martin, which is the biggest weapons maker in the world, makes nuclear weapons um, among a vast range of other weaponry and uh, we've been campaigning, we'll continue to campaign to to get that arrangement between the Memorial and Lockheed Martin uh, finished and to change the policies overall so that 
companies that produce weapons and that rely on wars uh, are not are not able to have the benefits that the memorial offers them. One of the benefits in particular, apart from you know things like uh, recognition within the memorial, um, having plaques with their name and that, and that sort of thing within the memorial, but one of the other benefits that the weapons makers receive is special place, special invitation at war memorial events. And this, of course, gives them very, very close access to decision makers within government, including people who will be making decisions about weapons purchases. This is surely a conflict of interest. Um, it's just very, very bad policy, bad governance. So there are a number of reasons why this needs to change. So we'll keep keep on with that campaigning. We set up a website called Reclaim Remembrance. So listeners might like to have a look at that and read a bit more about the problem and what they can do. Well, while you're talking about weapons, we've got Miles in the US meeting with his counterparts and planning to have the nuclear-powered submarine fleet here just a little bit earlier. Yes, what we've seen come out of the Osmin talks is pretty disturbing and it's not not actually new, this very close military relationship between Australia and the United States, but the extent of it is just seems to be ramping up and ramping up so rapidly. And it's been the case for some time that Australia would have difficulty staying out of any US war just because of the extent of military support that we give the US and the fact that the US relies on facilities in Australia. But that's just becoming more and more the case. It's so strongly the case now that Australia would have enormous difficulty staying out of US wars and yet that's the goal that that we should be setting for ourselves. In uh, Australia going to war should be only when Australia is defending our own interests or genuinely defending the the broader interests of the region or the global community and we shouldn't be joining in wars which are basically for the purpose of maintaining US dominance in our region. So the interoperability is a big problem and the nuclear submarines of course are a huge part of that. I should say proposed nuclear power submarines. They have not yet been uh, finally approved by the government. So we're still working on that. There's a lot of work to be done to raise awareness about the problems that nuclear-powered submarines for Australia would create. It seems strange to me that you could be trying to repair trade issues with China while at the same time preparing for war against that very same country. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the economic implications are absolutely huge, as I think a lot of a lot of Australians realise. Of course, it's not not just the economic implications, the humanitarian implications. If Australia were to join in yet another US war and give our moral support to to such wars, uh, the humanitarian implications of any war major war between the US and China, regardless of whether Australia is involved or not. But as as I mentioned, it would be very hard for us to stay out of it. Uh, the humanitarian implications, number of people killed, displaced, 
uh, injured, disabled for life, the environmental implications, and importantly, very significantly, the risk of escalation to a nuclear war. So all of these things, we get the impression that our government barely thinks about them. They don't uh, don't seem to talk about them. There's no discussion. There's no discussion that the government encourages in the community. There's no discussion in our parliament about all of these things. And then we go to war to talk about democracy. So it, uh, there are a lot of things that don't really add up in Australia's eagerness to be involved in any US war. And to add to the list of problems that I mentioned, if Australia were involved in a major war between the US and China, then it's pretty likely that we would be a target here. Pine Gap in the centre of Australia, the US relies extremely heavily on for targeting intelligence and other things. So we're really, with this eagerness and almost desperation to prove ourselves to the United States, we're really creating huge problems for ourselves and for the region. A lot of other countries in the region are concerned about the increasing tensions. And even if we didn't go to war, it's the money that's coming out of our taxes to prepare for war, to buy more and more very expensive weapons and you as medical doctors, the health issues, the money that's not going into helping the health system. Yes, the opportunity cost of preparing for war, let alone actually being at war, the opportunity cost is absolutely huge. And to take just the most obvious example at the moment, the nuclear-powered submarines that our Defence Minister so very much wants and others in government want, their estimated cost would be in excess of $170 billion. It's an absolutely eye-watering amount. No doubt that amount would go up because it's hard to remember a weapons project that hasn't gone vastly over time and over budget. Uh, Absolutely huge amounts of money. And for a small, medium percentage of that, Australia could still acquire submarines, but not nuclear-powered, but submarines that, number of experts say would actually suit our purposes better. Now, as you say, in the healthcare system, there are so many areas of unmet need. Just about every healthcare professional could point to um, delays, lack of resources, people getting burnt out because there aren't, there aren't enough people working in the healthcare system. Huge, huge problems that aren't receiving the same dedication and the same commitment of funding as weapons purchases uh, and preparations for, for going to war. This discussion could very well and should very well lead to questioning of the government, well, what actually is security? What makes What makes us secure? Are we more secure if we've got a much, much greater capacity to fight people or are we more secure if we've actually got a really good uh, top-rate healthcare system with all the resources that it needs? Same for education, same for environmental care, and of course, same for climate action. Climate action is one top, top-line item um, that would really, really make us more secure. So all of these things are the ones that should be receiving priority rather than ramping up our capacity to fight other countries.
and they never take into account the contribution of weapons manufacturers and war to the climate emergency as we see it now. No, that's true. And one of the other issues which is coming um, coming into its own more um, in recent times is the military emissions, military greenhouse gas emissions. And MAPW, Medical Association for Prevention of War, did some work on this just in recent times in the lead up to the recent COP meeting in Egypt. So there's a briefing paper on our website about the extent of military greenhouse gas emissions, which are thought to, estimated to, globally estimated to account for about 5.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Now that's a pretty significant number. And if that number could be really uh, reduced greatly, then that would be a, a very welcome and important uh, contribution to climate action. One of the other things about military greenhouse gas emissions is that they are hardly reported to the UN framework on climate action. It's not mandatory that these emissions are reported, so most often they are not which means they're not very well measured. There's a lot we don't know. So we need to get much better clarity around the extent of military greenhouse gas emissions. They need to be measured. They need to be um, subject to mandatory reporting to the UN and they absolutely need to be reduced. And they can't be reduced if we're going to keep on preparing for war at the rate that we are. I think we would agree, Sue, that it was a disgraceful the drowning of climate activist Violet Coco. Yes, the really harsh measures that are increasingly being imposed on activists um, such as Violet Coco and also we've, we've seen the same in relation to forest protection actions, particularly in Tasmania, more draconian laws from the Tasmanian government um, but elsewhere too, not just in Tasmania. Violet Coco for her action on Sydney Harbour Bridge, of course, in New South Wales. So instead of addressing the real problems that these activists are, are taking great personal risk to highlight and major, major problems that impact the future of all of us, instead of actually listening to what these people are saying and responding appropriately, there are harsher and harsher penalties to silence them. And this just doesn't make any sense for a country that should be looking to its future. And instead we see government financial support for industries that are actually causing the problems. The fossil fuel industries with subsidies, the weapons companies, the huge government support that um, that they're receiving at the moment. So the corporations that are creating bigger and bigger problems for our future, get off scot-free. In fact, they have government assistance and the people who are crying in desperation for some action to turn these things around are getting flung in jail for long periods and this needs to change. We just can't pretend to be, pretend to be a forward-looking nation when we're uh, treating people who are really trying to tell truth to power uh, when we're treating them like that. Our treatment of uh, activists needs to change dramatically. Does it make a bit of a joke of us 
and other countries attending meetings like the COP when they carry on like this once the meetings are over? There's always a lot of hypocrisy and we see that in international relations. There's nothing new about that. Countries will point out the uh, problems that exist elsewhere but not, um, to use biblical analogy, not take the moat out of their own eye and and we do see that. So in in all of these things that we've been talking about, whether it's you know preparing to go to war, militarisation, um, treatment of dissidents, penalties for speaking out, in all of these things it would be a lot better if Western nations generally looked in our own backyard first and put things right in our own backyard and then we'd be in a much better position to preach to other nations. Well, it doesn't sound as though it's going to be a very restful year for MAPW in 2023. No, it won't be a restful year. In March, there are very significant things happening. March will be the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was illegal, it was an act of aggression, um, and nobody, not a single person anywhere, has been held accountable for that. So there will be that 20th anniversary. Um, there will be announcements in relation to the nuclear submarines, the Defence Strategic Review. Uh, Richard Mars will be announcing his conclusions from, from all of that. In relation to the War Powers Inquiry, uh, in, inquiring into the decision-making process by which Australia goes to war, uh, that inquiry will report uh, early in the year as well. So there's a lot happening early in the year. We need to need to ensure that these nuclear submarines uh, don't don't go ahead. We need to keep speaking out against the militarisation of our country and the fact that war against China should be unthinkable and Australia should take take no part in it. There'll be a lot happening. Whistleblowers, uh, generally, we talked a wee bit about dissidents, these specific whistleblowers, whom a lot of people have been campaigning for, including our organisation, Julian Assange, David McBride, have still got lengthy jail terms hanging over them. And Assange is already, has already been detained for several years. So a lot to do on that front also. So no, it won't be a restful year, but we're, we're up to it. Uh, all of this work is so important that we, uh, we're going to approach the year with um, the determination uh, that we need to make some change. Great, Sue. Talk to you then. Thanks very much, Jan. And I've been speaking with Dr. Sue Wareham, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And if you didn't get to see the excellent series, Australian Frontier Wars, or you'd like to see them again, I recommend you get onto SBS. It was a three times one hour documentary series, excellent series. I'm sure if there's enough interest, they will play it again. And it was directed by... Rachel Perkins. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. 
The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And now we hear from Bob Phelps, the co-founder and executive director of the Gene Ethics Network. Over the year, we cover so many different issues and areas looking at genetic engineering. It must take a lot to keep up with all the developments that must be happening. How do you do it? Well, Google Alerts is pretty good because it scans the uh, global media for us on a daily basis on uh, the topics that we choose. So a lot comes in that way on uh, a variety of things, genome editing, gene drives, and genetic engineering topics in general. There's a lot out there because this is the biotech century and uh, it, it is really running hot all over the place. Any organism that you can imagine, any living organism is fair game for genetic engineering these days. There is a lot happening. Commercial interests and science, of course, are interested in developing new techniques and commercialising new products. So that's really what's driving the whole thing globally. And what did you do with that, Mr Google? It would certainly be a lot more time-consuming and hard to find uh, the information that's about what's happening. And, of course, we subscribe to various news services as well. And they're doing a good job of keeping us posted. But, you know, when you look at humans being genetically engineered, it's a ginormous field. Plants, a large number of projects around the world going on. Animals now with gene drives trying to make certain troublesome animals extinct. And then microorganisms are being harnessed up, mostly in factories and science laboratories, in order to produce a whole new realm of, of materials for medicine, for food, industry that have never been available before. The little powerhouses of uh, production, genetically engineered microorganisms in vats, uh, doing fermentation and producing all manner of proteins and enzymes, particularly for the food supply where they're not labelled. A huge number are now in the food supply, particularly things like uh, infant formula, all processed foods, ultra-processed foods, and so on, uh, now contain genetically engineered proteins and enzymes that have been produced using these uh, fermentation processes in vats around the world. I'd like to focus for a few minutes on the de-extinction of the thylacine. And this comes at a time when Australia is losing species like no other country in the world. And 
a university in Melbourne is going to spend or is spending 15 million to de-extinction an animal which we actually killed by neglect back in 1936 or 1939. Yes, in 1936, the uh, Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, was hunted to extinction. And you're right, it has been hot news this year because a US company called Colossal, terrific name, gave the University of Melbourne research and development team that's been working on this for a lot of years uh, $15 million to uh, go on with their work. Another interesting thing was that a couple of weeks ago, a museum in Tasmania turned up the in of, it's believed, the last Tasmanian tiger uh, to be alive in captivity. And it died in 1936. There's a debate about whether it was a male or female. These are why it gets into the media. But to meanwhile, in the laboratories, uh, there's this attempt to make it uh, be extinct, to reintroduce the Tasmanian tiger into Tasmania. But as you've um, alluded to, of course, we're uh, the extinction capital of the world. We've got hundreds of species of birds, animals, plants and uh, insects going extinct all the time. It's probably a good idea for us to get a bit more focused on saving some of those because many are uh, crucial to our natural environments. They're being neglected in favour of something like bringing back the Tasmanian tiger. We can only speculate, but the U.S. company Colossal, which is chipping in the money, I presume wants a few cute specimens to put in um, in zoos around the world to make a mint. And that doesn't seem like a good idea because the Tasmanian environment has been so modified since the 1930s that it's very li- unlikely that any Tasmanian tiger could live out there in the wild and thrive again, even with the problems of uh, a lack of genetic diversity would be essential to any community of such an organism. It doesn't exist because you'd be making uh, the new thylacine out of uh, bits of DNA from one animal. And so uh, the whole thing is really doomed from the beginning, except as a curiosity. And it gets the media attention, and that makes it all the harder for groups like the Genetic Network to get your point of view across. Tell me about the Gene Scene School Education Module. Well, we've been um, planning school education modules now for a couple of years. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't had the resources yet to actually create any, but it's clear that the de-extinction of the Tasmanian tiger would be, I think, an interesting topic for students. It would raise a lot of social issues like the one you mentioned about how should we allocate our resources about the ethics of doing that. Should we create a few animals just to put them in zoos? Or is all this puff and puff about, are we going to put them back into the environment, just window dressing for a much more profit-driven corporate agenda, which is now pretty evident with this money being chipped in by a US company. We're planning in the first part of next year to begin doing our gene scene school education modules and uh, I'm expecting that the first one, the first cab off the rank, will be uh, the de-extinction. And, of course, it stretches far beyond just the Tasmanian tiger. The other poster child, if you can call it that, for de-extinction is the woolly mammoth, an extinct relative of elephants, which used to populate Siberia and uh, vast stretches of tundra up there. 
And again, there's all sorts of uh, corporate interest, etc., and claims about, oh, this is going to help to restore the tundra. But the difficulties of uh, reproducing animals when you don't have anything suitable to actually bear the the new babies that are going to be born is a challenge as well. So, for instance, in the case of the mammoth, you would have to use elephants to gestate the creature that you created in the laboratory. And likewise with the Tasmanian tiger, it's just a bit difficult to see what it would be. The Tasmanian tiger is a marsupial. Um, it's got some relatives like possum and other marsupials in Australia. But what you would actually use to uh, carry the genetic construct that you had created in the laboratory to term and then produce an animal is a big challenge as well. Uh, The whole thing is very murky indeed, but it's a great story for the news media. It keeps the money rolling in and it keeps the scientists occupied in their laboratories thinking about uh, their ideas of uh, de-extinction. Wondering, Bob, how difficult it is for you to get through freedom of information blocks when you're trying to find out exactly what these scientists are doing or what they're planning on doing? You have some success and you have some some failures. Um, I I suppose our best success on a continuing basis is freedom of information about the trial and commercial crops being grown in Australia. The Office of Gene Technology Regulator, as part of its licensing, requires the companies to actually put in a report each year about how much seed they've sold and uh, that information is not generally available but we have had success with freedom of information in securing that information and it is now on the Office of Gene Technology Regulators website in their freedom of information section. We've got everything, well pretty much everything up to 2021 so at the moment we have another request in for the latest year But now, uh, interestingly, as well as the crop plants, canola, cotton and safflower, we've got to add to that vaccines, a number of vaccines, uh, which are genetically manipulated, of course, as well, have been approved by the Office of Gene Technology Regulator. There's no um, information yet about where those vaccines have been deployed in Australia, uh, how many people have been treated, etc., etc. So we've now lodged a request for information on that score and it'll be interesting to see whether the OGTR actually accedes to our um, request or turns us down. Of course it's somewhat different in that the OGTR is sort of a backup regulator in that it assesses the genetic aspects of new vaccines and other pharmaceuticals but in fact The department that actually regulates that is the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Failing a request to the OGTR will certainly be going to the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Unfortunately, it's much more of a black box. Uh, How it actually functions and handles all that information in there is uh, not entirely clear. It will be something that we'll be doing next year to uh, see what we can discover about uh, those trial pharmaceuticals that are out in in the environment being administered to human beings. Does that make you wary of vaccines, Bob? I think we should all be exercising precaution in our lives about the food and pharmaceuticals that we take. So um, I guess it's on the same plane as uh, any anything else one should put in one's mouth. Will you or won't you?
And so questions arise about the food supply extensively when we're being prescribed or deciding to take complementary medicines, we should be thinking about uh, what they're actually going to do do to us biologically and are they going to be beneficial or harmful. They're in the same category as other things and of course we're raising issues about gene manipulation but a whole lot of other stuff is done uh, to food and the pharmaceutical supply as well and we've got to be uh, pretty alert to uh, all of those substances which are of course commercial when you've got something commercial not grown in your own garden or produced by yourself everybody should be quite skeptical about it and how it was produced. Regenerative farming methods have had a good go this year would you agree with that? Well they're certainly getting a lot more more media coverage uh, in the rural media in particular. Yes there's a, a movement now alive and well There's a a global movement as well as a national movement to try to regenerate the environment, to restore soil health and to produce um, good foods. It's great to see that uh, the community is getting much more committed to the idea that as part of uh, dealing with global climate change and the impact particularly of agriculture, industrial agriculture on the climate, that regenerative agriculture is getting uh, much more of a look in than it did before. But I should say that it's still very, very small compared with the business as usual, high input, synthetic chemical dependent industrial farming systems. And it's going to take quite an effort and a lot of time, I think, for the regeneration message to actually get up and, and running in a big, serious way. So we'll see how it goes. It's great that people are working on it and uh, Regeneration International and groups in many, many countries around the world are now working pretty diligently on it. One of the good things is that uh, the so-called African Green Revolution, which has had uh, particularly Bill Gates funding for a long time, appears to be failing because it would have uh, dismantled many of the regenerative systems. AGRA, the African Green Revolution, has been going for uh, nearly two decades now with um, American philanthropic and corporate funding. It's clear now that it uh, hasn't fulfilled its promises and it hasn't dismantled African farming systems. So now there's a need to make them sustainable and not dependent on the industrial model to feed Africa. So I think regeneration has um, application everywhere. We're certainly very supportive and hopeful that uh, instead of the high-tech genetic engineering chemical-based agriculture, we'll see a transition to people caring about soils more, caring about biodiversity and caring about seeds because in the end, seed is uh, what we're all dependent on. Of course, gene-manipulated seed and a lot of other seed now is uh, patented and monopoly controlled and owned and so maintaining natural diversity, particularly um, natural, but also in the agricultural systems is essential for the future of regeneration as well. Just looking at factory farming in the oceans or around the seabeds of Australia, you've got a few concerns about that too. And I know I've read over the years about introducing antibiotics and force feeding the fish Are they the concerns of you or have you got more concerns apart from that? Well, certainly agriculture has big impacts on the environment. 
and uh, there are several Tasmanian groups working very hard to kick salmon farming out of uh, Tasmania. We support them. Uh, those aquaculture activities are now totally foreign owned, which is another concern. So what we see is that in North America, there's now Atlantic salmon, which is genetically engineered to grow faster and bigger than its native counterparts. And there are serious concerns there that those salmon, if they're out in the natural environment, uh, will tend to outcompete their natural relatives and have substantial impacts on that environment. However, uh, salmon are an introduced species in Tasmania. It's a big industry. It's uh, very damaging to the environment. But beside that, we could now imagine that the uh, North American salmon, which are genetically engineered, uh, being farmed extensively in Canada and the USA, could be a candidate for coming to Tasmania as well and having very major environmental impacts there too. So we've alerted local groups uh, that this may be on the horizon. Of course, Tasmania remains uh, one of the few areas of Australia that still has laws in place which uh, support GM-free activities in agriculture and outlaw the introduction of genetically manipulated organisms being imported or farmed onto the island. So we're hopeful that that law will remain in place, that uh, the commitment of the Tasmanian government will be to uh, GM-free. We're just alert that the pressures from the new foreign owners of uh, the agriculture industry in Tasmania should not lead to political pressure to uh, remove the ban and to allow the faster growing and larger North American salmon to come into the Australian environment. Uh, I think it would be a disaster and certainly we would be looking for it to be uh, rejected uh, nationally as well as locally if possible. Are you saying that all food that comes into Australia has to be labelled GM-free or if it's not GM-free, it has to be labelled as such? No, that's not so. Um, it depends what it is, really. If it's a refined oil, uh, sugar, if it's had its DNA removed, it's genetically engineered, but uh, the Food Stamps Australia New Zealand classes it as substantially equivalent to conventional product, then it doesn't need to be labelled. So vegetable oils, starches and sugars, even those produced in Australia, are exempt from any labelling. Likewise, processing aids and additives in processed foods are exempt from any, any special labelling. And also the animal products from animals fed genetically manipulated feed, such as corn or soybean, a large amount of which is imported into Australia to supplement local feed stuffs. They're all exempt from any labelling. So we're the same with the import of any genetically manipulated food products produced overseas as well. If it's refined, there won't be any labelling. If it was something like the Brazilian wheat, which uh, Food Standards approved this year, which tolerates the herbicide glufosinate and is also said to be more drought-resistant, then wheat products would require labelling if they are being brought in here for either in-processed foods or if they're already processed and coming in as ingredients. But it really raises the question too of, of enforcement because food standards makes the rules. 
but states and local government are supposed to enforce the rules and they don't have the resources or the political will really to make much of a fist of that. For instance, irradiated foods, which may be irradiated overseas as a biosecurity measure or irradiated in Australia to kill insects, are supposed to all be labelled. But whether they're coming into the fresh food supply without a label, it's very, very difficult to tell. We know that uh, thousands of tonnes of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables are now being irradiated at a facility uh, at the, uh, the wholesale food market in Epping, uh, in the north of Melbourne. But there's no record of what those are, and there's no record that advises uh, shoppers whether they've been labelled or not. They're supposed to be labelled at the point of sale, but it, as far as we can tell, no labelling is going on. Who makes a profit from this, Bob? Oh, well, the owners of the technology and the um, ultra-food processed companies, of course, are the ones who benefit in the end. They're uh, huge transnationals in the main. They organise the system to suit themselves. And what we see is that our regulators have become tame cats as well. People like the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority is really bought and paid for by the agrochemical and GM industries. The people who pay the piper call the tune, APVMA is always saying, yes, uh, this quarter we almost 100% of the applications we received, we've, um, we've approved them on deadline. That's their measure of success. And you can see always they're in the industry's corner, not in the public's corner. And it's the same with Food Standards Australia New Zealand in the making of, uh, of food standards. So at the moment, there's a whole process going on which will continue into 2023 to deregulate the so-called products of new breeding techniques. Now, new breeding techniques are uh, particularly genome editing. It means that the seed which produces food uh, will be engineered to resist herbicides, to contain insect toxins or some other traits. We don't really know yet what they will dream up, but uh, the idea is that the old genetic manipulation didn't work very well. Let's forget about that. Now we'll move on to the so-called genome editing and we'll assume in advance that all of their products are safe and will only require the industry to self-assess those products before they put them into the market. So they won't be notified to for SANS. The regulator will have no opportunity to assess or evaluate their safety or efficacy. Shoppers will be kept in the dark. So in the first quarter of next year, there'll be another major row, and we hope it can be a big one, as it was a year ago, about this deregulatory trend. But the deregulation is really going on worldwide. The industry, the globalised industry, has currently got a bill in the UK Parliament very much in the same vein as what's already happened and is happening in Australia. And the USA has got a hands-off approach to regulating food and pharmaceuticals as well. So it pretty much uh, lets the companies off the hook as well. This is a trend, deregulation. Companies, which are, of course, huge, many of them bigger than the economies of many countries around the world, are so big and powerful that uh, they really call the shots, they dictate the terms and where you've got uh, food regulation, regulation systems which are 
becoming more consistent with each other because of the Codex Alimentarius, which is the United Nations food standard setting body. Canada, USA, the UK, Europe. Europe's still holding out to some extent, but again, it's under pressure to deregulate a lot of new technologies in the food supply as well. And then Australasia, Australia, New Zealand, with Food Stands Australia, New Zealand doing the sellout, really they're all holding hands. The industry is calling the shots. We have to be a lot more vigilant. Uh, if we're a shopper, we definitely need to read labels. Uh, we need to get the best information we can to make sure that our food supply is promoting our health and well-being. Our regulators are focusing very much just on safety in the narrowest of terms and not thinking about the health and well-being of the community, which has now got multiple disease problems, obesity, and other really life-changing and life-threatening issues, that many of which hark back to uh, the food supply and to lifestyle advertising, particularly to children, is rampant of foods that uh, are not fit to eat, ultra-processed foods that are going to blight their lives. They're allowed to get away with saying what they like about these these foods, which are food-like substances rather than proper nutritious food. Well, finally, Bob, I'd imagine you've got your calendar for 2023, and there's a few spaces marked in for actions. You know, we've got, as you've pointed out, a number of things on our agenda and probably too many. But, for instance... um, The third uh, international summit on human genome editing, which was delayed from this year, is going to be held in March. We're reminded that at the last summit in 2018, the first genetically engineered babies were announced. There'll be a huge amount of pressure to overturn the bans. That uh, particular event, uh, producing those babies, was illegal. The scientists involved suffered a three-year jail term in China as a result. Elsewhere, we've got particularly scientists in North America, Australia and elsewhere saying we should be allowed to do this. We seem to have forgotten the eugenic potential of fiddling with the human gene pool and determining the uh, characteristics of future generations, which was the agenda of eugenics in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century which came to an ugly conclusion in the Second World War. The government, of course, is thinking about where it should put its money for research and development. A lot will be going into fermentation technologies using genetically manipulated organisms like those that I mentioned earlier that are producing foodstuffs and pharmaceuticals, and the government is uh, getting set to pour money into those, as well as a number of other vanguard technologies like uh, robotics and artificial intelligence and a whole lot of other things really which are converging these are working together to create a new and different kind of society and one that may not treat our children and grandchildren very well so we've got to continue to raise the ethical issues about all of these things and about the kind of society that we want for the future and in particular to protect the human gene pool, I think, from meddling by scientists, industry and ideologues who think that they can do better, that they will impose the values and attitudes of this current generation onto future generations and that that will somehow be better. 
create a better life. This is the rhetoric that's given. But it's a bit like the nuclear power industry creating waste that are going to be around for a quarter of a million years, longer than human history, and still say that we were able to generate electricity for 50 years or so, and that that somehow exonerates us from any responsibility to deal with the wastes in a way that's going to protect the environment and human beings into the future. It's just unethical, immoral, and uh, really wrong-headed think that uh, this generation can impose itself on uh, how future people are going to live. So that's the debate that we want to generate. Uh, We hope that people will be thinking about those kinds of issues and deciding on the basis of ethics, good governance and the rule of law, even good science, science that's not motivated by getting Nobel Prizes or commercial gain in order to build a pathway to the future that's um, that's humane and ethical. It's great to see that kids are getting involved in saying our human rights are being affected by decisions being made now about uh, global climate change, for instance. So I'm hopeful that some of that will rub off on the debate about genetic engineering as well. It certainly needs to. We're Victorian bushfire survivors. We know fire. With flames reaching 1,100 degrees, the wave of radiant heat can kill from 200 metres away. If you knew fire, you'd prepare your home. You'd know when to leave, where to go and how to get there. We know how important it is to plan and prepare. How well do you know fire? Plan. Act. Survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And their last interview for 2022 with Human Rights and Trade Union activist Peter Murphy. And Peter, the Philippines, that's the main focus of your activism. A new president, what's changed? I'm afraid uh, virtually nothing has changed in in, uh, day-to-day reality for Filipino people. We've got a president in uh, the younger Marcos who hardly says anything at all. So he really looks and sounds different from Duterte, but he's implementing all the policies from Duterte. And, of course, Sarah Duterte, uh, the daughter of the former president, is the vice president. She's certainly a a hard driver. I think she's going to persist with uh, her father's legacy. So we've had, you know, from July 1 to November 7, so it's about a month ago, there were 127 uh, reported killings of people by police in so-called anti-drug operations. So the the war on drugs, which is really a war on poor communities in uh, the cities of the Philippines, is is going on. And we've had, uh, I think, now 12 killings of uh, political opponents, so much more sort of targeted political killings in the same period or in a little little longer period. So, uh, you know, it's really a very depressing situation in that regard. The unemployment is still extremely high. Poverty is very high. The the numbers are hard to get right, especially for an Australian audience, because um, all the people involved in the informal economy are considered to be employed when really they're they're just barely alive, really scraping an existence. The um, poverty rate in the Philippines 
it's, it depends on where you have the cutoff for absolute poverty. You know, at like a a dollar sixty US a day or two dollars sixty US a day. But of course, anyone on either of those is is very poor. So the the poverty level is somewhere around seventy percent in the Philippines, according to a more realistic um, measure of uh, trying to stay alive. It's uh, still very very difficult for Filipino people. You know, the the effort to get out of the country on uh, overseas contracts is uh, really persisting and it's necessary for a lot of people. Um, and it's really one of the fundamental economic planks of the of the governments that we've had, including the present one. One thing that's happening is that because of the pandemic and the sort of ongoing impacts of it, the, the number of overseas contracts available for Filipinos and other migrant workers around the world is less. Um, and we've sort of seen a bit of that in Australia um, in that there's, there's far fewer uh, immigrant workers coming at the moment. Yeah, so I think that just adds to the pressure. What about rights for Indigenous peoples and rural workers? Are there such things as land rights? You know, in the Constitution of the Philippines and in laws, there's a recognition of uh, ancestral domain. That's the relevant uh, term in the Philippines for what we would call land rights. The certificates of uh, ancestral domain are uh, issued and supervised by uh, National Commission for Indigenous People and so on. But uh, in fact, it, these uh, certificates can be certificates can be cancelled also by the same commission, and in general, there's there's enormous amount of uh, violence against indigenous people in, in the Philippines because of resource projects in their lands. You know, historically, a lot of the indigenous people have been pushed up into the uplands in the various islands of the country, um, and now in these uplands, you know, the, the forests, the arable land the rivers, minerals like coal or copper or nickel, uh, many minerals, in fact, uh, are all in the uh, sites of multinational corporations and their local sponsors, you know, in the government and including in the National Commission for Indigenous Peoples. So it's a it's a very tough scene in uh, Philippines for Indigenous people and the numbers of Indigenous leaders actually killed, you know, in... Uh, targeted killings as in political killings or in uh, more random bombardments of their settlements you know by uh, aircraft or by artillery you know it's it's really alarming and uh, really shocking uh, to you know any any witnesses but uh, news of these things is uh, very hard to to find is there any help at all coming from organizations within the united nations Yes, I can say that uh, because of you know a lot of work over decades by Filipino organisations, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has, and several of the special rapporteurs from her his office now have paid a lot of attention to the Philippines and have spoken out many times about these sort of outrages I've just referred to, even. Now, in November, they have these five yearly uh, periodic reviews of the human rights record of every member state of the United Nations, and the Philippines were up for review, along with Indonesia and a few others. It was really clear that um, a significant part of the international community is very alarmed at uh, the picture I just painted for you. They think that's the truth, and uh, they're pretty firmly rejecting 
sort of whitewashing of that story by uh, Philippine government representatives. So, you know, we've sort of got a toehold, I think, in terms of UN structures that uh, what's going on in the Philippines is unacceptable. And then, of course, you would have heard of the International Criminal Court also investigating President Duterte and his high officials for the crime against humanity of murder during the war on drugs and other police operations and military operations. We are really hoping that this investigation soon leads to the issuing of warrants of arrest and uh, hopefully some trials will, will take place. But even having the investigation and the possibility of arrest warrants is clearly having some slight inhibition or constraint effect on the government, but uh, they are sort of in denial in their public statements. They're always denying that there's any basis for these things to take place, but they have to deny. You know, they have to come out and answer. So, um, you know, we, we're having some impact in that regard. And as you're saying, when the human rights defenders and trade union leaders or workers are arrested, then the word soon gets out overseas to support them. Yes. More quickly for the workers because they're generally in an urban area where communications are better and you know, there's more people to confront the authorities. Um, in rural areas, it's, it's more dangerous to even investigate these things and it takes longer to get the information out. But uh, yes, the uh, I would say that there's a, an emerging pattern with Marcos of a more focused repression of trade unions emerging, not so much in killing leaders in this last couple of months, but in arresting relatively senior leaders, so to inhibit the uh, operation of the organisations. Uh, so we've had the uh, International Affairs uh, Officer of the uh, May 1 Labour Movement uh, arrested uh, on completely ridiculous charges, a leader of uh, a jeepney drivers organisation in Manila also on the same charges, a urban poor organiser, you know, really focused on housing issues in Manila, also more recently arrested and really very high bail set for them. It's really, you know, having a, a hard impact, I think, on the resources of everybody to find these thousands of dollars, you know, US dollars to get these people out of detention. And, and we can expect it'll take years to, you know, finally prove that the charges are completely baseless. So there'll be a lot of, you know, legal fighting going on, an unfolding picture at the moment, Jan. How would you gauge the success of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines over the last year? You know, I feel reluctant to sound anything like bragging because, as I say, the situation is so bad. But uh, I think we've worked very hard this year in the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. First, to organise a pretty significant international observer mission for the elections that took place in May. And then to uh, reach Geneva with a significant group of us able to make a presence felt at the uh, Universal Periodic Review. And uh, we witnessed ourselves that uh, the Philippine government representatives there in Geneva were um, really knocked back in, in their attempt to whitewash the, the picture. It's, it's a bit of a disappointment that the uh, UN Human Rights Council has not maintained this Philippine situation on their agenda following the meeting in October. And we, we have to figure out a way to 
reassert the need for that uh, in the next year or two. But I think we put on the record that the election that took place was just nowhere near a free and fair election according to international standards and that President Marcos and his administration really owed no respect as a democratic government. We've maintained the flow of information to the international community about the you know, continuing violence and uh, arrests, killings, uh, of uh, people who are really standing up for uh, issues like farmers' rights to land, indigenous people's rights to their land, women's rights uh, as uh, not to be subjected to misogynist attacks, the right of the poor to have a better living standard, the right of people to actually speak. You know, the media repression in the Philippines is very severe also. We're going to continue with that work. We hope we can get more... Uh, organizations outside the Philippines to join our coalition. I think, I think we'll succeed in that in this coming year. And, uh, yeah, so I think got stronger. We, we worked hard and we're having an impact. That's what I'll say we've achieved. Any joy with the Australian Labor Party now they're in power? Well, we've just had a uh, visiting speaker from the Philippines who was a Senate candidate in the May elections, uh, a lawyer, a human rights lawyer called Neri Colmenares. So we met two senators uh, and uh, one uh, member, you know, Labor member of the House of Representatives and uh, also a staffer from the Deputy Prime Minister's office, uh, who's also the Defence Minister, to raise the issues about military aid and, and more general human rights problems in the Philippines. And I think they were very sympathetic hearings we got from all of them. There's uh, a lot of resistance, you know, to really critically assessing what's happening with Australia's relationship with the Philippines. We've experienced that for a long time, but uh, I think we can all see that there's a more energetic and I think a genuine assertion of uh, human rights values by this new Labor government, and we should be confident, I think, that we can build on these meetings we've been able to have in this first period of the new government. And I hope next year we will get much more serious consideration of the problems I've raised. I really don't know what, I wouldn't predict what the Albanese government will actually do yet uh, about these things, but I think we'll get more expressions of uh, of objection than than we've had under the Morrison-Turnbull-Abbott governments. And, you know, these were the governments, especially Turnbull and and Morrison, that were there during the Duterte period. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking... We've made a beginning with the Labor government, but um, you know we, we have to do more work to get results. But we have an opportunity to, to get them, I think. What should we know about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity? Part of me wants to throw you away back in history to talk about the Greater Southeast Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. That was the Japanese Empire's uh, formula for the region in, in World War Two, you know. So the more you hear people talking about this sort of collective prosperity and all that, the more you should suspect that there's, you know, much more exploitation happening, much more danger. This uh, new initiative called IPEF from the United States administration is more or less directly marketed by them as a counter-China economic initiative. Got some really lovely language about the rights of workers and uh, 
climate action, the rights of indigenous people, the rights of disabled people. They have never been mentioned in any trade talks before, as far as I can recall. You know, there's a bit of gloss there, but uh, at the the bottom, it's um, an effort by the United States to get corporations to cut off supply chains from China and establish new supply chains in friendly countries in the region. So there's 14 countries at the moment, including Australia and New Zealand, involved in this IPEF. It's not all of the ASEAN countries. I think that, you know, this initiative will have made some ASEAN leaders really shake their head and, and worry about the future because really it's about making countries in the region choose either the US or China, whereas most of them, including Australia officially, are saying we will not be forced to make that choice. We we, we don't want that. Washington's made this initiative and the friendly people like Australia are naturally going to say, oh, sure, we'll go and talk. But I think it'll be a much tougher forum than you might think. That I myself am sceptical it will go anywhere. And one of the reasons for that is that the United States government is not offering any more you know, market access into the US markets to anyone as part of this set of talks or this framework. You'd have to ask yourself what is in it. You know, for people, and one one of the more I think it's a little bit humorous uh, answers to that question is well, the United States uh, government and U.S. corporations will have to invest more in the region. They'll have to spend more in this region, and that's uh, very similar to China's Belt and Road project, which is all about infrastructure projects in the region, financed by China. So. I think very early days, this is the first negotiation. I think they're just feeling their way. And, of course, uh, groups uh, like uh, the Australian uh, Fair Trade and Investment Network, which involves a lot of unions and church organisations and environmental groups and human rights groups, will be there. Um, And there's similar groups coming from uh, Malaysia, from the United States uh, and New Zealand to and challenge the negotiators about what they're doing. We will have a better grip, I think, on on the scope and what could really happen um, by the end of this week. You know, we'll see we'll see what unfolds in the new year. I think the next uh, meeting of trade ministers at that level, or even national leaders, they say will happen in a Asian country because the United States doesn't want to to look like you know Westerners are running the show, but. Actually, you know, at this uh, negotiation in Brisbane, all of the sessions, except the ones to do with inclusivity, uh, Indigenous people, etc., all except that one will be chaired by U.S. negotiators. So, you know, to me already, it's very clear it's uh, driven by U.S. What stories this year have made you feel encouraged, Peter? Thinking about the whole year, I would say that the fact that we were able to uh, change the Morrison government and have a Labor government with a bigger green presence in the parliament is very, very encouraging. And when you look around the world, it's uh, one of the changes running against the trend. I think a similar event was uh, the recent Brazilian elections with uh, Lula being able to be the president and uh, Bolsonaro finally being out of the way. 
that's really important as well. But the, the counter stories, you know, look at the Italian election and a fascist party is now leading the government of Italy. It's a very serious turn for the worse. And in Europe as a whole, I think there's a lot of uh, disintegration of uh, political parties of the centre and left happening and uh, openings for the right. So, you know, I think it's a very troubled continent now, Europe, and that that I think partly partly because of the big impact of the war in Ukraine. So I think that, again, the war in Ukraine is a bit, you know, something that should sober everybody up. And I think also here in Australia, we witnessed some very, very bad climate extreme events and uh, it's been a huge damage to many communities in uh, inland Australia in the east, eastern side. And, you know, we're not, we, we say we've got a government that's talking better about it, but we're not doing much more about climate. So, you know, I would take heart for that, that working people can really change the politics and we've we've got that in our own country. Let's let's really work with that and let's be but very sober and, and uh, honest with ourselves about the very difficult period in front of us. Thank you so much for all you've done this year, Peter, as usual. Okay. And thank you, Jan, and thank you to your program and 3CR for what you do. And we'll hear more from Peter, Peter Murphy. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.